The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll, and it's Black Friday. Black Friday! Bring the devil on the wall! Black Friday! Bring the devil on the wall! Hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving and plenty of turkey, and let's get rolling with the Duff McGagan joke of the week! Hey, Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling here. Hope everybody's doing well and good. I'm, I'm sitting here with my wife, Susan. She's right over here. Um, she asked me to ask you, did you hear about the claustrophobic astronaut? Yeah, he just needed space. Thank you very much. Uh, as if we didn't have enough turkey already. Ha <laughs> Two for one Duff jokes here today. Very helpful and very thankful to Duff for bringing the last every Friday. Hope Duff and Susan and the family had a great Thanksgiving as well. And we're thankful for everyone who came out to rock with Fozzie in the Spotlight on America Tour. We had a great time, and we're getting ready to bring the tour across the pond. Once again, Spotlight on the UK kicks off February 16th in Newport, Wales. Tickets to the show and to the VIP meet and greets are available now at FozzieRock.com. We've got one of the best VIP experiences in the biz. We meet you, take pictures, sign stuff, and we even let you sing. So again, FozzieRock.com is all the ticket info for the shows and the VIP meet and greet. See you in Europe in February. All right, today on the show, another Talk is Jericho first-timer and another actor-comedian making his Talk is Jericho debut. David Cross is here. David's done a lot. You know exactly who he is, Mr. Show on HBO. Waiting for Guffman with Christopher Guest, the Chipmunk movies, and one of my favorites, Tobias Fionke on Arrested Development, one of the greatest characters in television history. And yes, we're talking the never-nude gimmick on the show, the condition never-nude. David has stories from that set and from the Waiting for Guffman set. Uh, and Christopher Guest's improv comedy um, rules and motivations. He talks about how Mr. Show got started at HBO and the impact it had on sketch comedy. He also talks about how he got started doing stand-up as a teen, what he remembers about the first stand-up show he ever did, and how comedians like Andy Kaufman, Steve Martin, Richard Pryor, and Stephen Wright inspired his own comedy style. And, of course, we're talking about his new comedy special, Worst Daddy in the World, premiering Monday night, November 27th, on Veep's which is a very cool service. Go check that out. He shot it at the Metro in Chicago. Fozzie's played there. And now you can stream it on the Veeps app. Fozzie's been on Veeps before as well. Uh, you can get a ticket for the show or subscribe to Veeps at veeps.com. Start your week with a multitude of laughs with David Cross, the worst daddy in the world, which premieres Monday on Veeps. And to give us a little taste, I got David Cross on Talk is Jericho right here, right now. Let's just jump right into it, man. Uh, talking here with David Cross, lots to discuss. But right out of the gate, I want to ask you about working uh, with Christopher Guest on Waiting for Guffman. Oh. <laughs> Amazing scene that you had in that. Yeah, that was uh, that was like one of the first things I did. And I was very, not nervous, but just sort of, yeah, nervous isn't the right word, but like anxious and shy. I don't know, but he was, you know, a, a hero, comedy hero. And sure. And I had met him only briefly. He and Eugene Levy were in this tiny little office somewhere in Hollywood, teeny. And I just met him and it was like a weird, there was a real kind of, uh, learn this or do this. He just wanted to meet. And I talked with him for like five minutes. Eugene Levy never said a word. Uh, and he was like <laughs> six feet away. He just kind of looked up and went, Hey, 
And then we talked for like five minutes and that was it. And then I went, oh, I went home and I didn't know what that was about. And then I got, uh, you know, like, here's the thing. Here's the deal. It's all improvised. And here's what they want you to do or want you to play. And I remember on the plane, because it shot outside of Boston, Texas, on the plane, I thought of all these things for the character. I had so much time. And I was like, oh, I'll, he'll be this and this. And what if I do this? And what if I say this? And and I got to the set and I said all that to Christopher Guest, who doesn't really give a lot away, you know? It doesn't seem like he's very, he's very stoic, right? Yeah, he's just sort of like, he's listening to you, but he's just reacting like this and not you don't see a whole lot across his face and i i don't know like a 90 seconds of like so i was thinking this and this and just dumb backstory shit and then and he just went he just was like no don't do any of that um just <laughs> uh, oh okay uh yeah and then the other thing about it was i was out in the field and the camera was kind of far away and so was video village so I was doing stuff to nobody, just to, there's a cameraman right here, and I'm just sort of talking to the camera. There's no direction, and everybody's way over there, and I have no, I'm just going until they tell me to stop. So it was very strange. <laughs> so it basically, what kind of direction does he give you for that? Like as far as like, just explain what these crop circles are type thing, or is there any lines that you have to hit? It was mostly like telling me kind of a couple things I needed to hit because they paid off later. There was some uh, reference to something that hadn't been shot yet that I wasn't aware of. So there were like two things that I had to say, but the rest of it was, you know, he, he was in his director's chair and then they yell cut and it was like a good 30 seconds to walk over to where I was in the middle of nowhere, this field. And then he'd go, <laughs> that thing you said about that, keep just keep saying that, do that, don't do that, don't do that say this, say that, don't say that. And then he'd walk back and then he'd yell, yell action and we'd try it again. <laughs> you know, do the thing about the weather, <laughs> the, the thing you riffed about this, don't do that. Um, you know, just stuff like that. So, and you mentioned that was one of the first things that you had ever done in Hollywood? Yeah, I mean, it was, I think I'd done, gosh, I, I, I mean, not a lot. It was pre-Mr. Show. I know that. Maybe, maybe we might have been, uh, yeah, I don't think I had, filmed anything yet like maybe a couple of things but mm -hmm. i'm not exactly sure where it is on the timeline if it was mr show then it probably we maybe had shot it but not released it yet i don't know it was very 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 early well you mentioned mr show when you look back at mr show i mean that that it's got kind of legendary status at this point of being very influential on kind of a lot of modern day comedy what was it like when you guys were filming that at the time did you realize you were doing something cool or was it just a, a gig trying to keep it afloat I mean, both, you know, I mm -hmm. mean, there was definitely a sense, especially because our live shows, we had done live shows before we ever got the chance to do it, to shoot it. And those had become kind of, you know, the cool thing to go see and check out. And we were getting, you know, pretty quickly, we're getting celebrities and musicians. And so we kind of felt, you know, getting a lot of positive feedback and, um, you know, there wasn't a ton of sketch back then. It was, it was right. SNL obviously was still on. Uh, I think SCTV is gone. Kids in the Hall had just started and there wasn't a whole lot on there. So we really had a bit of an impact because we were, we were just sort of a, a, there wasn't a lot to choose from and we were definitely different than in Living Color and uh, Kids in the Hall. And I mean, we we're closer to Kids in the Hall than anything, but definitely not SNL or anything like that. So you had this kind of feeling of like, oh, this is pretty cool. This is something we're on to something here. And we knew the sketches were good. We knew the shows were good. And, you know, it hadn't really, they, HBO wouldn't really give you numbers. So it was cable. So you just have to trust them. And we had, I mean, our budget was nothing. <laughs> so we, felt, we felt like we were in a pretty good spot to, continue doing because people just sort of left us alone we were on whatever it was fridays at midnight I mean, right you know what i mean and we we had just such a tiny budget compared to the other shows and so we felt pretty good like and we got critical success and i think we were nominated our second year we were nominated we started we, we got nominated for some emmys and 
around the second year we started. Those started to come in. I have to, where are you? I have to ask. You look like you're in the top part of a trampoline. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm actually in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, my band's on tour right now, so I'm in the venue. Oh, and the Wi-Fi was really bad in the dressing room, so I had to come upstairs and kind of like this holding area. So it's the roof that you're seeing. It's a very fancy roof. <laughs> yeah. No, I was. it actually looked like one of those... Uh, superimposed backdrops. Yeah, and, yeah no, this is, it's real. Uh, it's real. Hey. <laughs> Where are you in Madison? I love Madison. Uh, we're, we're at a place called the Annex. We're playing at the Annex tonight, which is uh, kind of downtown area. You know how it is when you're on a tour, you get off the bus, you kind of just yeah, look around yeah. and, okay, here we are today. So it's that type of vibe. I love I love Madison. It's a great place to do shows too. Is that from, from touring around doing stand-up? Yeah, yeah. And you still do a lot of stand-up now? I literally just finished the did the last show on last Saturday in Tucson, I think. Yeah, I did seventy two shows. Gosh, it was great. I mean, I really, you know, I, I had to cancel the last one because of COVID. The last tour. Yeah, and I yeah. hadn't been on the road then since uh, two thousand eighteen. I think the last time I was that, and I love touring. I love it. I mean, I don't like it when I'm the f- travel is awful. Right, it's a grind and it's even worse now because uh i've got a daughter who's in school now so i don't go out for three four months at a time now you know I'm, i go out for four or five days come back for three days and i've been doing it so that but that the screws up the routing so there's a lot of like you know getting up at 7 30 so you can get to the airport and go fly to seattle so you can make a connecting flight to spokane and then get there and you know, but I don't have to tech. I don't have any sound check or anything like that. So right, right. How was it for you returning to the road after COVID, after not being uh, on stage for so long? Because we all went through it. All of us went through it at some point. I mean, it was when I, the time from when I last did stand up to when I next did stand up to get the material ready for what was eventually the tour that was canceled. Because I, I had to cancel it because of the, the Delta uh, Omicron variant yeah, yeah, yeah. picked up again. Right. It was the longest I'd ever gone without doing stand-up since I started when I was like 18. And I got I started getting emotional in a way like in my head I was like, this is gonna be embarrassing if you can cry because you have to do stand-up. <laughs> but right. I it's such a treat. And just getting to go out on the road, it's just one of my favorite things. I love traveling and through the country. I mm. love bringing the show to people. I love you know, because I I live in Brooklyn and uh, there's plenty, plenty of shows here. Every night I can jump on a show. I can make my own show and it's great and it's easy, but it makes you a little, not lazy, but just, I mean, it's just easy, you know? And I like, I like going to, I was in Missoula, Montana, you know, a week and a half ago and it was awesome. It was like, man, I'm so glad to, and I can't wait to get back to Missoula, Montana or Fargo. <laughs> right, or, right. Uh, doing shows there, you know? I was just in Fargo a couple nights ago. Yeah, it's it's that's that's the cool thing too when when you get to tour and see the the whole country and know I can visualize Fargo and Missoula in my head right now and you know a lot of people don't get a chance to do that you know and, and see the the world yeah. so to speak you know yeah yeah the longest field goal ever attempted is seventy six yards the longest field goal ever missed also seventy six yards why bring this up because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal. And when you gamble, betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Let's go back to just a couple of things I wanted to talk about when you were talking about Mr. Show and you mentioned Kids in the Hall and you mentioned SCTV. I'm from Canada and obviously that was a huge part of, of, of our comedic culture. Mm-hmm. Did you get a, a, to get to see SCTV a lot, for example? Because I think, where are you, where you? Oh, yeah. Where were you from? I grew up in Georgia. But yeah, we had uh, we had SCTV was on, I, I think it was on initially like one like a cable channel or something. What, who would play it? Gosh. I mean, this is back, you know, this is pre-HBO and all that, so... I think at one point it made it onto late-night NBC or something along those lines. Well, we there were two things. Yes, it, it switched over to late-night NBC, but by then, I think the most of the original cast was replaced. It was like... Yeah. Tony Rosario, Rosario and... Uh, Robin Duke, uh, Tony Rosario, yeah. 
So the initial, you know, John Candy, Flaherty, Andrew Martin, Catherine Hara, Eugene Levy, uh, uh, Rick Moranis, those guys, I don't remember where I saw it, but I mean, I would have been fairly young, you know, but I remember loving it. And then Kids in the Hall, I was older. I think they came on in, what, 93? Like, yeah. Like that? But a little bit earlier, actually. I think probably a little late 80s. And it was actually just for, just for it was actually Cinemax. SCTV was on Cinemax. Really? Just, you know, yeah. Oh, well, I didn't have Cinemax, so I don't know where what it was in the States. But I definitely saw the early... So I saw, I mean, I saw everything. But yeah, Kids in the Hall was late 80s. I remember it started because I was still in college at the time. I used to watch it on Sunday nights. In the States, um, it would be on? I don't know. I'm just maybe in Canada. That's when it started. Maybe it transferred over, like you said, probably 93 or 94, maybe. Where in uh, Canada are you from? Winnipeg. Okay. I played there. Not on this last tour, but on the tour before that. You know who else is from Winnipeg? The great legendary cinematic genius of Guy Madden. Guy Madden? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, Winnipeg. He made a movie called My Winnipeg. Wow. I didn't know. I, I thought I knew everybody from Winnipeg that had made it. <laughs> Isn't Winnipeg where the Burton Cummings Theater is? Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> That's where I played. Yes. <laughs> uh, me too. We're, we're, we're Eskimo uh, uh, venue buddies. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about, about you mentioned being on, on, on tour and doing the stand-up and you have uh, your, your new special coming up on, on Veeps, which we've also done a show on, which is kind of a, a pay-per-view type uh, vibe, right? Yeah, it, this will be the first time with them. I don't think they have comedy. I think they're, uh, I'm, I'm helping to launch their comedy division. Division, yes. But yeah, I know uh, the guy who... Runs it, uh, runs a comedy part. Bart Goldman is an awesome guy. He's a really good guy. So that was easy. That and, and also Netflix said no. So <laughs> it made it even easier. <laughs> so when you're putting together material like this, the special is called The Worst Daddy in the World. You mentioned you have a daughter who's in school. So how, wh- why is it The Worst Daddy in the World? I was looking for a title and like every single time, literally every single time, when I was trying to come up with a title for the tour, it's, it was either too pretentious or too dumb, silly, punny, and nothing in between. Like <laughs> the stuff I was coming up with was just, <laughs> I'd be walking down the street going, oh, I know what I'll, I'll call it this. And, and then like I'd check it later and just roll my eyes like, whatever, what a dumb, <laughs> like dumb or just like taking myself too seriously, that kind of thing. So, and it happens every time. And then, my daughter was yelling at me for whatever the thing was. I wouldn't let her do some dumb thing that she shouldn't be doing. And, and she said I was the worst daddy in the world. And I was like, there you go. There's the title. Great. Thank you. It works. You still can't have a third cookie, but uh, it came from her. You said you started doing stand-up when you were 18 years old? Yeah, I mean, literally 17, but it was like a week before my birthday. So I just say 18. It's easier. Who, who were your influences to, to want to get involved in that? Oh, man. My first stand-up, it was Andy Kaufman, uh, Steve Martin, Richard Pryor, Jonathan Winters, Lenny Bruce, Stephen Wright. Those were like the big ones. And so w- were you nervous at first to go up on stage? Did you have, were you, were you the funny guy in high school? Like, I, Well, I wasn't like... I moved around so often, like, uh, I was figuring it out the other day. I didn't go to the same school or have, or no kids in the class until I was in sixth grade. That was the first time I went back to a, the same school and knew some of the kids. And so I would, I was pretty, I was always the new kid up until I moved back to Georgia. I was born there and moved around a bunch and then moved back when I was nine. But, um, so I was kind of shy and I was also, Certainly in Georgia, I was the weird looking kid. I had a big Jufro and uh, <laughs> we were really poor, so I didn't close had holes and patches and I had tape around my glasses if they broke. And I just looked like a out of a modern day Dickens thing. I just looked, you know, I was clear and I, there were barely any other Jewish people around at all. And so I was just, I was weird, you know, and, uh, and then sometimes you'd embrace that, but mostly I was just kind of quiet until I felt comfortable enough to say something. Right. But then I was, you know, as I got older and, and a little more comfortable and started, started knowing people, I was definitely more uh, kind of rowdy, sassy, uh, I guess. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like not, not the greatest. I was confrontational too, but uh, I'm just kind of like my, my stand-up, really. It was just a little 
anti-authoritarian and pushing buttons kind of thing. And, um, and the first time I did stand up, I was extreme. I was so nervous. I almost fainted. I almost got like hot flash kind of thing where I just, I thought I was going to faint. And I was really, really, really nervous. And the guy, I wish I could remember his name. Super, he was hosting super sweet, super nice and encouraging and he was really helpful. He was a juggler, remember that. <laughs> but he was very nice. And and the oddest thing, like you couldn't script it this way. It was just crazy. But I killed. I crushed. I mean, it was like something in a movie. You know, I'd never done stand-up. Right. And my material was just stuff that I... And it was ridiculous. And they like, oh, the red light's on. I got to go, no, stay. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> and then, of course, what should have happened happened after that for like the next you know 35 times I went up and I bombed I mean I just ate it I bombed <laughs> and it was confusing but it was very strange but I'll never forget it like I just killed I was like oh my god I'm a genius I'm born to do this yeah, yeah. I should go to New York I should get an agent you know whatever and of course I ate it the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards the longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards why bring this up because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So let me ask you this then. So, so I would assume, like, what's the difference between killing it and bombing it? Is it the crowd who shows up that night? Did you try and change your material that didn't work? Like, why did you bomb so many times after being so great the first time? I, you know, it's, it's uh, and it, it remains to this day, it's different factors. Sometimes, I think I'm also very honest about whether it was me or the audience or the venue. Sometimes it's the venue. The venue, not a lot, but the venue can really make a difference. Like Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I did a show in Manchester in England, and I always do well in Manchester. And it was a new venue. And it's my audience at this point. They're not, it's nobody's coming, going like, oh, I'm going to go see a comedy show. Who's this guy? Right. All right. Here's 45 bucks. You know, people are there to see me. They're familiar with my work. I often have to think, like, if I don't have a great set, is it me? Is it the audience? Is it a venue? Is it some combination of, two or out of three of those or and you know again i think i'm pretty honest with when i'm just off sometimes sometimes and nobody at this point is going to go you suck that was a terrible show <laughs> but you can tell a difference there's the great shows where everything clicks and it's all good and everybody's kind of in tune and i mean you know this sure there's an unspoken connection and and you can go out and i've also really been wrong a number of times where I'll prejudge, I'll look at the venue, I'll look at the audience coming in, I'm going, oh, this is going to suck. It's a bunch of like older white people. And, and then it's great. And vice versa, where I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun. And it's just a struggle. Sometimes people are really drunk and you got to kind of babysit. You know, it's like, uh, again, not a lot, but the show I did in Bozeman <laughs> was like everybody loved it, but I don't want to be on stage more than an hour and a half. I think that's... Mm. Ideally, I'd be up for an hour and 15, but everything expands. And I'm very, you know, I riff a lot and I'm, I'll talk to people and stuff. So, but there were so many like drunk women and that was also <laughs> odd. It was all women and like the front. And I know, I know what the tickets are in the front too. Like, I know you paid a lot of money to come here, but you're like, as in, don't, that's not what I was saying, you know, whatever. And you're like, and you're like, you gotta, can't be so loud, you know, whatever. It just messes up the bit. And by then you've got the cadence and delivery and the timing and all that stuff. And, and it's like, look, I'll do crowd work if you want. I'll make fun of you and you can feel like shit for the rest of the evening. Right, right. Uh, you, you know, you paid the money, but you know. That's, that's interesting. I never thought about it. You said you had to babysit if they're too drunk. Mm -hmm. That probably kind of throws off the bit, like you mentioned, throws off your act by having to placate these these people. Yeah, it's less about placating them and more about trying to make the decision, you know, as soon as it's happening, of like, how can I let this go and just plow through? 
or do I need to nip this in the bud or how, how much can I, if I ignore it, will it go away? And, you know, that's all based on decades and decades of experience. You, you just try to, and sometimes you're wrong, but, you know, you're just like, if I engage, then I'm engaging. Mm-hmm. And then I've opened the doors to that unless I shut it down quickly. And I'm, I'm really, I mean, I count on one hand the time I've kicked people out or I really try not to do that. I try to just address it. And I'm not talking about people who are heckling me. I'm talking about people who are participating, You're right. you know, helping right. me. <laughs> being part of the show. You know? Or like some people, it's almost like a Tourette's, but some people just yell out things they think are funny when I've set up, when I'm asking a question that's rhetorical because I know what the answer is. The answer's coming and the answer is the fucking punchline. Right. So well, don't yell out Trump, you know, or like that. No, but you get that. I had that last night. We did a a show in Lansing, Michigan. There's one guy in the crowd yelling something, just talking over him in between songs. Because I know if I if I stop and acknowledge this person, I don't even know what they're saying. I don't want to know because it's not fitting into what my vision for this overall presentation is. Absolutely, yeah. And again, you know. I mean, I don't have like, I can't turn up an amp and <laughs> hit a power cord to drown them out. <laughs> right. So any, anytime I'm pausing, you know, for effect that some people see an, an opportunity to yell dumb shit out. And again, it's not a lot. It doesn't happen a lot, but enough. So that's where the babysitting part. And again, I really don't want to kick people out. I know some comics are like quick to go get them out, get them out security, whatever. You've done so much stuff in Hollywood, kind of going back to, to your early days. What, what would you consider to be like one of your first big breaks in your career was? Um, I mean, there are a couple really, you know, if you looked on a timeline, there are a handful where you go, that was huge. And the, the first big, big, big thing where everything switched was I'd gotten a manager through Stephen Wright. It was Stephen Wright's manager and, a uh, mutual friend of ours was, I was good friends with her, and she, we were doing this comedy group in Boston, and she said, you should check out this guy. And Stephen came down and saw a set I did, and he referred me to his manager who was living in New York. He came up, watched me do stand-up, and signed me. His name is uh, Tim Sarkis. And then, because of that, I got into the Just for Last Festival in Montreal, which is the biggest comedy festival on the planet. It's been around for i don't know 40 years something crazy like that and it's huge yeah it's it's a month long and it's great and uh so i got to do that and then you know you do you're pulling on a bunch of different shows and you know you'll do like six or seven shows throughout the week or so and i did this one show i can't remember what it's called it was like the danger zone or you know (laughs) whatever it was it was (laughs) naughty time or whatever and uh and I remember doing the set and it was, you know, packed and it's tons of industry. And there's, you know, I don't know, 800 people, 700, I don't know. And I fucking killed and I crushed and I did weird stuff and I did, you know, what I do or did, I should say. And it was sort of like the buzz the next day. It was a big deal. And Charles Joppe was Woody Allen, David Letterman's manager. I was like, he was quoted in the paper, like, this is a kid to watch and blah, blah, blah. And everything shifted after that. And then the next big change was getting a job writing on the Ben Stiller show. Uh, Janine Garofalo was an old friend from Boston from stand-up. And she got my sketch packet to those guys, to Judd and Ben. And I'd met Ben. Ben and Janine and I went out for drinks before he had the show. So I had a little bit, you know, he knew who I was. And then I moved to L.A. and I was thrown into Hollywood, a place I'd never really been to before. And, you know, it was trial by fire because the show was already up and running when I, I replaced somebody else. And it was a huge learning experience. And and it also brought me down quite a few pegs, too, because I kind of had this attitude of like, I'm a stand-up. Stand-up is pure comedy. Right. <laughs> True artist. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like 20, whatever, however old I was. And then, uh, and I met Bob Odenkirk there, although we did not, we weren't friends at first, but then we became friends. And then there was Mr. Show, which I would say is the third piece of the puzzle, the third thing that changed everything. And then from there, there were like smaller things that happened, but 
those were the three big things that super sped up my career and got me to the next level quickly. Were you surprised, quickly, as you mentioned Bob Odenkirk, how successful he became with Better Call Saul? With, no, no. I mean, he's such a great actor in those in, in that part. He's a great actor, and, and I mean, there are, and I said this even before Breaking Bad, but there are some sketches he's in and Mr. Show that it's undeniably good acting. Like, even though it's a comedy bit and it's a grounded bit, like, there's just really good acting. Even though it's a four-minute ridiculous comedy sketch, you believe his character. You have, you have uh, empathy for him, and he brings kind of a humanity to him. So I'm not surprised at all. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. To me, what put you on the map, and, and for me, was Arrested Development, of course. Right. Tobias Fiumke, uh, one of the all-time greatest characters in, in television history, in one of the greatest shows in television history. So kind of talk us about how you got that part, because there were so many comedic geniuses involved in that show, and, and I would put you in that category as well with what you did with that character. Well, yeah, that was very special. We all knew it was special when we were shooting the pilot. Originally, mm -hmm. I had... Uh, you guys... Uh, Drum teching? Sound checking, so I'm, I'm muting myself so it doesn't mess you up too much. Sorry. Because I was going to say, you got to bring the pitch on the floor, Tom, up a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Front of House by David Cross for today's sponsor show. <laughs> I, I had just moved to New York. I had been in L.A. for nine years. I did not care for it, and I never wanted to be there. I, I needed to be there for work, but I'm not in L.A., Right. Type person, it's not for me. It's uh, and I wanted to move to New York and found an opportunity where there was just a break in my work schedule. I'm like, if I don't leave now, I'm going to be stuck here for another three, four years. Yeah, exactly. Right. Moved to New York, got an apartment, had a girlfriend, just loving life. It was just great. And then I got, you know, my manager said, "There's this new show that their Fox is going to do." Um, and it's this guy, Mitch Hurwitz, and it's really great, and you should check it out. And I was like, I don't even send it. I'm not interested. I'm not going to go back to L.A. and work. I just don't want it. Just please check it out. And then um, even Naomi Odenkirk, Bob's wife, made a pitch for it. Like, you should really check it out. So I got the script, and it was great. The script is really funny. They wanted me to look at the Job and Buster characters. which uh, Oh, wow. Yeah, and a job I had no handle on at all. I didn't know what they were looking for. But then there's this, Tobias has kind of a, and Tobias was always meant to be like a, a recurring character, not a regular cast member. He, he was in like six episodes or so. And I, Tobias was like, I immediately got this guy, knew who he was, and that's who I wanted to play. And also like the idea of like not being a cast member regular cast member was really exciting. <laughs> you know, right, like right. I stay, I can live in New York and I don't have to move to LA for another, you know, four or five months a year. And, um, and so I talked to Mitch and I talked to the directors on the phone and I gave him my idea and I said, I'm really interested in bias and this is how I see him. And I described what he looked like and what he wore and all this stuff. And they were like, great, fantastic. And I was like, okay, so I'll be a part-time guy. I'll play Tobias. I'll come in and out. Awesome. <laughs> Everybody's happy. So I went to shoot the pilot a little while later. And I remember very well being on that a little bridge. Uh, are you familiar with LA? Like, yeah. um, you know, the Beverly sure. Center? Yeah. Across the Beverly Center is the Beverly Connection. And <laughs> there's like this little bridge in the back, this little like walkway, I should say. Yeah. And I was on there and I called my girlfriend who is very much New York. And I said, Hey, I think I have to do this show and I have to, it's really pretty cool. And it's, it's something special. And I think I have to be 
a regular on it. And I'm going to have to move here. I remember making that call. Going, this is really something special. So we all knew it. It was really cool. And everything about it, the direction, meeting Mitch, his personality, the writing, the, the ability to improvise. It was just... And also the cast. I wasn't familiar with really anybody. I knew Jessica and Jeffrey and Jason's sort of face, you know, but sure, yeah. I wasn't... And I didn't know Will or Tony or Michael or Alia and, and Portia. And it was just just really fun. and. Um, and the casting is just perfect on that show. It really is. And again, we, there was like day three, day four, that feeling that we all had and we were getting to know each other. Like, this is pretty awesome. You know, this is a rare experience, you know? I, I so, love some of the things that Tobias did over the course of the, of the, of the time. You mentioned there was a lot of improv. <laughs> the, obviously, the Never Nude is one of the greatest bits ever. Who came up with that? Was that written for you? Did you come up with that? Oh, no, that was meant. I mean, you know, there was improvising in the beginning, but the, pretty quickly, the scripts were so dense and so packed, and the scripts got bigger, and I mean this in a literal way, the scripts got bigger and longer, and our time was shrinking. Like, every year, Fox would cut off another 30 seconds to sell for ads. So, oh, wow. you know, initially, it was like, whatever it was, uh, I, I, I don't, I'm pulling these numbers out of my ass, but it was like, 24 minutes an episode. And then that got cut down by the time we were done. It was like 21 minutes. And oh, wow. 25 minutes. Like they kept cutting time every, every year. It, but the scripts were getting longer. So any improv stuff was usually cut. Mm. It, scenes like you, you would shoot for a day, you'd shoot a scene. And then it would be, you'd go into ADR later after everything's posted. And then, uh, um, the scene would be reduced to like a cut on your back and you'd have to say something like, I'll get the door or something just to, right. <laughs> you know. So. Uh, yeah, ne Never Nude is, is a great bit. I also love the fact that Tobias wanted to be in the Blue Man group mm -hmm. and you would see the random fucking <laughs> blue handprints all over the house, just like randomly placed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, some good stuff with that. So, what about what about season four when you did the entire? It was kind of over over the course of the same period of time. That was very inventive as well for that. Yeah, I mean, I loved the idea of it. I watched it, and it took me about kind of six or seven episodes, like right when I was getting to like Tobias's story, to really understand how to watch it. Mm -hmm. And then I really started to enjoy it more. I mean, I was enjoying it, but it was it was so it was a little disconcerting. But it, it definitely took kind of getting used to it and going, "Oh, I see how to watch this now." And I loved it, loved the idea, loved the execution of it, and kind of bummed. I get it, but I'm kind of bummed that Netflix took that version off the air and then just did the chronological version. Like right. when you go see it, you can't see that version anymore. Oh, really? It doesn't exist. Yeah, I don't, I don't oh, think wow. it's. Uh, I don't think so. It's too bad. It was really inventive and, you know, paid off. It was one of those things you kind of had to invest a little time in. And again, it took me a good six or seven episodes to go, oh, I, I know how to watch this now. I can, I see how this works. It's interesting, too, because it was like eight years after, after the first couple seasons. Yeah. Was it uh, easy to get back into that character again after such a long time? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a, I, I could do it now very quickly. It's just a... And especially, this is going to sound like I'm joking, but honestly, when I put the mustache on, it's like that is the thing that can really just drive it home. If I, if I look in the mirror and I see that mustache, that's specific. You know, when you get the glue on, you put the mustache on and the glasses and like, oh, there's the device. But uh, as I said, it's, a, it's kind of a based on two different archetypes that I... You know, one being East Coast and one being West Coast. And I just, yeah, I, I know exactly who that guy is. I don't like him. <laughs> you don't like Tobias? No, I mean, I like him, but I would just be calling that guy on his shit constantly. <laughs> like, he's just so annoying, but annoying because he's so pretentious and full of himself and self-centered, even though he claims not to be. 
And that's the problem with that whole show, though. All those characters were kind of like that. It was a very unlikable family, for sure. Oh, yeah. So, and, and incredibly self-absorbed, you know. Except for George Michael and maybe and Michael, I'd say. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Uh, let's talk about another one of your movies that I really enjoyed, which was uh, the, the stuff that you did with the Chipmunks and, and how huge that franchise was. Did you expect that when you guys started doing it? Nobody did. No, nobody, nobody thought that that movie was going to do was going to become a quite literally billion dollar franchise. No, is that what it was? Billion dollar? Over a billion. Over a billion dollars. Yeah, internationally, dude. I, I have been in some of the most like odd, random, and often remote parts of the world, and people have gone like, you know, the chipmunks. Or, you know, I, I mean, I'm telling you, everywhere, China, I was in Mozambique on the on the Indian Ocean, like in a tiny remote place good to go scuba diving. I mean, there's nobody there. There's no, nothing. And I was in, uh, I was on a ferry boat in Turkey. I mean, just like the, the craziest places. And people will be like, uh, the chipmunks. <laughs> Yeah, you stole the chipmunks. I get that a lot. <laughs> What's weird is that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, that was a long time ago. But so many now they're adults. Like the people who were kids who were way into that, all you know, these adults will come up to me and go like, "Oh man, uh, chipmunks was huge, man. I, I love that you stole the chipmunks." You know, and it's just weird to hear it from an adult because I was so used to kids all the time going, "Who stole the chipmunks?" <laughs> what did you think when that was pitched to you? I mean, obviously, that's the cool thing about Hollywood. You get all these different opportunities, and sometimes it seems a little bit crazy what you're hearing, but how did you, what did you think about it? Well, that, it was the opposite, really. I had been, uh, I hadn't worked in six months, which is psychologically, it's, it's really hard. First couple months, you're not, all right, whatever, something will come around. By month four, you're like, what's going on? And you start thinking, is, am I, unhirable is nobody want to work with hmm, me five months in you know and then so it had been six months since i had worked and i love working and if i had a steady thing i don't think i would have done it but i really 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 you know i wanted to work and it wasn't my ideal project but it was uh, i was happy to have the work and uh you know, the first one was fun. First one was uh, an enjoyable, had a you know really good director. It was fun, and I I did enjoy it. And they let me improvise. All I mean, all three of those movies. I'm I riffed mm. at least twenty to thirty percent of the all the stuff you see in the dialogue. I mean, I just came up with that. So that was fun too. You know, and uh, and also you know once <laughs> I signed that contract, as I said nobody expected it to be that big of a franchise but you know i was contractually obligated like well now you got to do as many as they want you to do up you got to do at least three. Oh, really is that how it was they kind of lock you in there because I, I mean i didn't think it was going to be not that i wouldn't have signed it anyway I, I mean i happily signed the contract did the work but yeah i didn't anticipate i'd be doing two more but yeah so just now you said you didn't have work for six months because you've been working steady Basically, since Mr. Show, it looks, I thought that, you know, wh wh why does something like that happen, do you think, sometimes? You know, just a confluence of different events, I suppose. You know, and you, you're you not the same. Like, if I'm going out for certain roles, I've aged out of that. Or I, you know, you're just not right for that guy anymore, that part. And then you start going, doing these different things. And, um yeah, it was just one of those, I don't know, just didn't work. And it just was happens, right? Yeah. And there's no like, uh, it, it would almost be easier if people said, you know, oh, they don't like you. <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. And then, you know, I worked pretty steadily. But that's kind of the nature of the business is you'll, 
you go through a lot of work. You know, it's when it rains, it pours. And then when you, when it stops, sometimes it stops for a while. And, you know, and I, I'll always have stand up, you know, so I'll, I'll be working. Some. Well, and that's how kind of it goes in Hollywood. And something else that I noticed that you've done a lot of as we start to wind down here is voiceover work. Your voice is, is in so many different projects. How do you approach that type of a role? That is, it's really just, you know, you ask people what they're looking for. And almost always it's like, oh, just, you know, it, there'll be a description in the script. But mostly it's like, don't try to do too much. Just do you and, uh, and, um, and that's usually what it is, the direction. Then you're just being a lit, you're just turning it up a little bit because it's animated. So something that you might deliver on camera a little more placidly becomes a little more, you know, hyped up and energetic and just bigger. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. it's really fun to do. I, I, I enjoy doing voice work. It's, it's pretty cool. I, I like it. Yeah, it would seem like, you know, you have to, do you ever change the voice up a bit? Like, you know, add some gruffness to it. I guess it all depends on, on what. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 But I mean, you do that in, until people go like, you know what, don't just, just do, do yourself, you know, or do more like Tobias or do, you know, make gotcha. it more nervous or nerdy last few things for you david i mean like i said you've done so so many things what are some of your favorite characters that you've played i mean obviously we've talked about tobias we've talked about the chipmunks but besides those types of parts well certainly tobias is up there uh there was a character i did on mr show a bunch that we made a movie about and that was based on stuff i used to do in my stand-up which is just uh redneck drunk dumb redneck guy which i used to just do in high school just do the voice but uh on mr show it was ronnie dobbs but that's a really fun that's easy i mean i could just do that in my sleep mm. dumb drunk redneck so i got that down <laughs> there was there was a character i did in a, a movie where i was more of the straight man and there's like mm. a big twist at the end uh which was really enjoyable to do and like some of the other cast, kind of the other comic heavy lifting, and I just uh, I enjoyed being that kind of grounded. And he, it, it's a movie called "It's a Disaster," and he is a stranger to this group of people who are all friends, uh, having this this brunch that just devolves into chaos. And I'm like somebody's date, and so it was really that was really fun to do. Todd Margaret, of course, was really really enjoyable. Just the world's dumbest man. <laughs> he's just so dumb. And he's also cocky when he shouldn't be cocky. And, uh, and just, you know, the full titles, uh, Oh, there it is right there. Uh, the increasingly poor decisions of Todd Margaret. And he just, every choice he makes is just stupid. And he's, he's faux, uh, well-meaning, but he's not, he's really, it's just about himself. But it's kind of, if you, if you go into that, going, okay, this is the world's dumbest guy. And it's really fun. He was fun to play. <laughs> I mean, you know, even even Ian Hawk, just a douchebag, you know, an asshole uh, in, in the Chipmunk movies was, that's fun. That was fun, you know, just being a, a jerk. When you did that part, obviously there's a lot of, you know, Chipmunks that are being constructed post in post were you talking a lot to a green screen or did they have a little puppet there that you could talk to or yeah the the process was really long and uh there were several steps so you would i don't know if i'm getting all the chronological sequencing right but you you'd initially do it you'd do the scene and then they would have tennis balls on the end of these like long sticks and somebody Mm. be there to kind of map out the route that the, if I'm talking to this chipmunk and there's another guy bouncing around and I have to go, Hey, stop that. They, they do that. So you can get some kind of where your eyes are supposed to be. Right. You know, so there's one in front of me on my hand and then they're da, da. So you go through that uh, a number of times and they have to take those away. Then I think they put things there. Then they take those away. Then I think you shoot and then they put this amazing, like, 360-degree kind of mirror ball-type camera in the center, which shoots everything. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. The technology is nuts. And then you do it again. I think you do it again with the little tennis balls. Then you do it again without anything there. And then, you know, you obviously have to 
redo it if you're looking the wrong way. And I remember in the second movie, there's a scene where I'm in like a apartment complex and, and I'm, I'm shoving a, I'm either taking the chipmunk out of the mail slot or shoving him through or something like that. And we had to do that for two hours because <laughs> they're like, oh, your hands are too, your hands have to be exact. There's a camera right here. You, your hands have to be in the exact place because right. if they're too big, then the, then the chipmunk is too big and then your hand won't be like <laughs> too short. Then you're like choking and your fingers are inside the, t- it was crazy. <laughs> and so, and, and there was movement to it. So you, your hands can't change the shape <laughs> for this like couple of seconds. Of, it took like you know almost two hours. Did you ever think when you were eighteen that your legacy would be a never nude with uh, with the CGI chipmunks? Yes, <laughs> it's 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 the it's the American dream, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, last thing for you, man. Worst dad in the world. It, it's coming up on uh, November 27th. You've done a lot of specials. Obviously, this one's a little different with, with, with Veeps. You still love doing these types of specials? And how much do you have to prepare for it? Because I would assume you want to make sure that you nail it, but you, you still want to keep it a little bit loose. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's no preparation other than, you know, I, I always tape the special midway through the tour because hmm. at that point I've done the set, you know, 35, 40 times at that point. And, you know, you just shoot, uh, I shot two shows at the Metro in, in Chicago, you know, you have a 7.30 show and a 10 o'clock show or whatever. And, and you just shoot two shows. One of the dudes has his baby on there. You got it all to you get the drum check. You got the guitar check. I asked them to stop making noise. And then the little baby's running around. So you never know what you're going to get, Dave. <laughs> well, man, uh, I appreciate talking to you. It's been a blast. And once again, big fan of all the stuff that you've done. And uh, congratulations on your new special. All right, man. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, dude. See you then. Have a good show. Have a fun set. Enjoy Thanks, Madison. Man. Stop streaming, kid. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, dude. All right, man. Bye.